You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Hey, Midtown family, my name is Jay Hendricks, and I'm one of the pastors at our downtown church. We're excited to celebrate with you for our citywide Celebration Sunday coming up on November 18th with our family of churches. Our hope with having a family of churches is to get to see little Jesus-centered communities all over our city spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know it's not going to be a normal Sunday for most of you and a little bit more of a drive for some, but we're excited to see our family of churches gather together in one place at one time to worship Jesus at our downtown church building. We'll have one 10 a.m. gathering with food and fun right afterwards, and we'll also have a 5 p.m. worship and prayer night. It's going to be a lot of fun, a lot of food, a lot of games, so bring the kids, invite your neighbors, and we're going to have a good time. We're excited to celebrate and worship Jesus together. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I'm Ant Pastor here at Midtown Two Notch. I see a lot of visitors here. Very glad that you are here uh, worshiping with us today. Just want to extend a special welcome uh, to you for, for being here with us. We're in the middle of a series in 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're actually right at about halfway. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 today. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to get it started at verse 1 in a little bit. But want to give you a heads up on a few things even before we do that. I'm going to let you know what I'm trying to do uh, for some of you that are in the room today. Uh, historically, with our church up until, uh, I, when I say historically, I should say from January to about August of this year, our church uh, began doing what we call prayer walks in the neighborhood where we would just go door to door asking people how we could pray for them. God used it to open a lot of uh, doors for us in the Pinehurst neighborhood where we were located uh, for the first part of this year and the years that were uh, before then. We're going to get those started back up today. Anybody? Anybody? Amen. Now, here's what's going on. There are some of you in here who were who have been here since January, and ever since I've been talking about the prayer walks, you're like, that's not for me. I'm not doing that. I ain't got nothing else to do, but I'm not going to do it. My, one of my goals today is to convince you that you should at least give it a try. So I'm just going to go ahead and let you know I got our prayer walk shirt on right now. How can I pray for you? If you go on prayer walks, we will get you a prayer walk shirt. So that's the first thing I'm going to do is try to bribe you with a shirt. I'm also going to get into the Bible and talk about sharing the gospel with people that don't know him. But I wanted to let you know I do desire for each of us um, to at least pray about and consider, especially our members uh, joining in on our, on our prayer walks, just to see if it's something that God would have for you to do. We're continuing to talk about what we've called, what I called last week, the demands of love. Last week I said that love actually places demands on us, right? We live in a culture where, where the mantra is, hey, you do you. You, you, don't let anybody else put any rules or restraints on you. They can't tell you what to do. It's your life. You need to look out for you. You do what's best for you. And part of my uh, proclamation throughout this, this week and last week is that as Christians, we got to rebel against that at least a little bit, right? Like we, we submit to the authority of God, but also, also if you truly love somebody, that love is going to restrain you in some ways. That love is going to compel you in some ways. That love is going to place demands on you. There's things that I do now that I didn't do 10 years ago before I was married. Right? There's things that I do now that I didn't do six, seven years ago before I had children. Why? Because the love that I have for them, it restrains me. It places demands on me and on my life. And if we accept the cultural mantra of I need to just do me and do whatever I want to do for myself, that is actually anti-love. That is actually against love to embrace 
that cultural mantra or even gospel, you might call it. Last week, we talked about how the demands of love might lead us to deny our rights for other brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would sacrifice whatever right we have so that we might not put a stumbling block in front of them that might cause them to stumble into sin or into idolatry. Today, in chapter 9 in 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to talk about and and open up for us a lot of the sacrifices that he has made so that those who don't know him can come to know him. So last week we talked more about sacrificing for the brothers. This week is more sacrificing for those who do not know Christ. I use that word sacrifice. If, if I were to come up with a definition for it, I would say it's giving up something you love for something you love more. It's giving up something you love for something you love more. I don't know if you know this, but every time you make a decision about how you're going to use your time, how you're going to use your money, how you're going to use your energy, you're always making a sacrifice right? A very, uh, very misunderstanding that many people have about Christianity. Many people believe, oh, if I become a Christian, then I'm going to have to start living a life of sacrifice. It's like, no, you've been living a life of sacrifice all your life. You've always been living a life of sacrifice. You've always been choosing, I'm going to choose this over that. Every time you make a decision about how you're going to spend your day, there are hundreds of other things that you could be doing that you are sacrificing for whatever you actually choose to do. We all live lives of sacrifice. As Christians, obviously, we come to know that Jesus, that God in himself, the Trinity, our triune God, is more beautiful, more glorious than anything else. Our goal is to grow our affections and our love for him, that we might sacrifice whatever we need to sacrifice, that we might know him more and that others might know him more as well. That is the call we take up as Christians. You all made a sacrifice to be here this morning. You could have been at home. It's feeling like winter outside. You guys could have stayed at home. You made a sacrifice to be here. People who are at home sacrifice the gathering with other believers and other followers of Jesus and worshiping him and sitting under the teaching of his word for the comforts of being at home. Everybody's making a sacrifice no matter which decision you make. Without further ado, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 27, Paul is going to use a lot of verses to show us about some of the sacrifices that he's been making that others might come to know him. Chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? So we're not 100% clear, not 100% clear on why Paul feels the need to defend his apostleship to them. We do know that by the time 2 Corinthians was written, there were some who were coming in and arguing that Paul really wasn't an apostle and that they shouldn't listen to him. But Paul actually went in and started the church at Corinth. So he says, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? He said, not in serving the Lord, isn't the fact that you have a church some, some amount of validity to my claim that I am an apostle? So we see him ask this rhetorical question in verse 1, have I not seen the Lord? So at that time, and really in biblical times, the term apostle was one, the term means a sent one, someone who was sent, but the office of apostle was only held by someone who saw Jesus specifically and was commissioned by him to go on and preach the word of God. They received revelation straight from Jesus' mouth and, and were called and sent out by him to go proclaim his good news. And only those who, who had that type of experience and encounter with Jesus could actually be, hold the office of an apostle. So he asked the rhetorical question, have I not seen the Lord? He's, he's trying to get them to understand, hey, I am an apostle. Now, you might ask the question, if that's the case, then how come so many people around here call themselves apostles? I agree with the question. Moving on, Chap- verse 2. I agree with the question. Verse 2, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. 
for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. So he's saying to those who are coming to me and asking the question of, hey, is this guy really an apostle? Those in the Corinthian church, he's like, you're here, aren't you? Isn't this church present? Isn't this church to some degree growing and continuing on in the Lord? This is how you know that I am an apostle. Continue on with with verse 3. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Verse 4. And do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living. So there's a little bit of confusion maybe about what Paul is talking about here. So uh, he, we do know that he did not accept money from the Corinthian church. Now, if you've been with us the whole time, we talked a good bit about how they were used to having these philosophers, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, all these guys coming through, and they would stand kind of in the, in the middle of the city and, and share their philosophies and how people should live. And so oftentimes, some of them would ask for money and some of them would not. It seems to be that some as they're seeing Paul, and Paul didn't ask for money, might have thought that Paul was being weak for, for, in a way of saying, well, if Paul was really the real deal, why he coming and he's not even having anybody pay him for, for what he is doing? It's likely that there are some in the Corinthian church that are a little bit confused, but it's also likely that some feel like he shouldn't take any money as well. So he, when he makes his argument, you can see he's kind of uh, debating against both sides there. In verse 4, again, he says, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Verse 6 again. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So he's telling them, he's beginning to make this case, hey, we have a right to receive money from you as your pastors or as the apostles at that time. Continue on verse 7. More rhetorical questions. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of his fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So Paul brings up a soldier, a farmer, and a shepherd. Three roles that pastors, in a, from a spiritual sense, actually engage in as we lead the church. So Paul is like, hey, you guys who are saying that I actually wouldn't have the right to any type of money really aren't making any sense. He's saying if I'm fully investing myself in, in this work, then I should be able to in some way reap a harvest to provide for myself. From that, verse 8, do I say these things on human authority, or does not the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? So when, when oxen are, are treading out the grain, so sometimes they, they would throw grain together, and they wanted to be more level instead of in piles, and so they would have oxen just kind of walk around on the grain as they were treading out the grain to kind of even it out, make it flat, spread it more, more evenly, and distribute it a little bit better. And he's saying, and the scripture that he quotes from Deuteronomy is saying, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. The point is, it is cruel to the animal, uh, is what uh, the law is saying, to have them walk around on the grain but not allow them to eat it by putting a muzzle on them, he's saying. He's making a point that if, if that is cruel, if God is saying that that is cruel to do for the animal, then it, wouldn't it be even more cruel to say that the apostle Paul himself wouldn't be able to receive any type of financial benefit from the work that he's doing in and among the church? Verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Verse 12, if others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? You ever had this conversation with somebody, maybe your mom or your aunt, somebody like that, and they tell you something, they say, and another thing, 
And another thing, and you know what? I got something else I want to get off my, this is, what, this is what Paul essentially is doing. He's giving them reason after reason after reason for them to be able to see that, hey, I had every right to have my needs met by you all as a congregation. Let's see, we'll pick it up, verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Paul, again, reaffirming, I have a right to receive some type of compensation. Verse 15, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. So to give you a little bit of understanding of what Paul means when he says boasting, many uh, translations uh, translate that word boasting as rejoicing. It's, it means to, uh, to, to glory in something, to have some uh, large amount of joy in something, especially something that, that you're stating or that you're proclaiming. So Paul, for about 15 verses, is saying, I had to write. I had the right to be paid by y'all. I had the right to have my needs met. If I would have wanted that, I had every right to do it. 15 verses Paul stating the rights that he have, or 14, I should say, in verse 15, he says, but I made no use of any of these rights, and I'm not writing this so y'all can send me money, he says. As a matter of fact, if you're familiar with his second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, he actually does ask them for money that he goes and receives from them, but he sends it to the church in Jerusalem, which is a church that was suffering from a lot of poverty at the time. He's not trying to get money from them. Verse 16. We find out why. For, I, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul says preaching the gospel in and of himself is enough reason, well, in and of itself is enough reason for him to rejoice, but he wants to be able to preach the gospel and not ask anything from them. He says, as a matter of fact, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. That word woe means great sorrow or distress. It, it can also mean a trouble that causes sorrow and distress. He wishes sorrow upon himself if he is not proclaiming the good news of Jesus to those that do not know him. Woe to me if I am not preaching the gospel. Trouble and calamity is another thing that that word woe means. He is compelled internally to proclaim the good news of Jesus. So he's willing to do it without pay. Verse 17. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? Hear this. That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul says that even in laying down his rights to be compensated financially, he still has a reward. He, the, the reward that he's after is not primarily uh, monetary. It's not primary, primarily financial. He, he says, it's a reward that I can just come and present the gospel to you. Man, if we saw the, the, the gospel ministry and the proclaiming of the gospel the way Paul did. That it's a reward for me to be able to do it. Like, I am blessed. It is a blessing for me to be able to come and bring you the gospel free of charge. Paul says, he says, that is my reward. And he makes, so he doesn't take or use that right that he has to be compensated by them. That is a servant's heart. 
When you prefer the blessing of giving someone something over the blessing of receiving something from them. When you feel blessed just to be able to bless somebody for free. Paul's reminding us here of something that we've probably all experienced. You ever been able to, there was somebody you were just thinking about, maybe they're going through a difficult time, maybe not, and you were just able to come to them and give them something that was a true blessing to them. You know it was a blessing to them. They knew it, and you just felt a sense of joy and reward in that moment. You probably felt more fulfilled. You you, You probably felt better in that moment than if they would have given you the same gift. There's actually true blessing in giving to others freely. Paul is reminding us that Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. That there is immense joy that is extremely rewarding just to be able to freely give to someone just because you're able to. And this would have cost Paul a lot. This would have cost him so much. Paul was a tent maker, so he's physically working with his hands to provide for himself financially so that he can hold out the gospel to them for free. It wasn't just that he didn't want money for them. It was that now he had to go to work. Now he had to do work with his hands. He most likely went to bed tired night after night after night because not only was he serving as an apostle and shepherding the congregation that was there, but he's also working a full-time job most likely. Tired, physically tired from his work, spiritually and emotionally tired likely from his work as, a, as he shepherded the flock that was there. And he did it, he said, because I have a reward. He was willing to work, to take on a job that he did not have to take on because it was just such a blessing to be able to offer it to people for free. It was just such a blessing, such a joy to him. That's what fueled him to labor in this way. This is amazing. Paul goes on, continuing to show us how he denies his rights and sacrifices whatever is necessary for the gospel. Pick it up at verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So, In this church in Corinth and many of the other churches where Paul went and preached, you had some people who were Jews, some people who were holding on very tightly to the the Mosaic Covenant, to the law that God gave to his people through Moses. And then you had some Gentiles who would have likely been very unfamiliar with a lot of those customs and a lot of those rules that the Jewish people had to follow. So Paul is like, when I go to the Jews, if it removes a stumbling block in their way from hearing the message that I am proclaiming, then I will live as if I am like them, that I might win some. I'll change my behaviors. I'll change my patterns. I'll change what I'm allowed to eat. They couldn't eat bacon. I don't know about y'all. I don't think I could do it. I don't know about y'all. Paul was willing to sacrifice that. We know he said in the the last chapter that if eating meat caused my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. We see the same principle applied right here as he's going to be around the Jews. And he says, "I, I will act as if I'm under the law. If that doesn't cause you to stumble and just think I am ungodly, then yeah, I, I, will, I will play by your rules. I'll play by your rules. Why? Because of the reward that I have of being able to share the good news of Jesus with you. And then he says, but when I'm with the Gentiles, with those who are not under the law, then I will live as if I'm not under that law. And then he, he clarifies saying I'm still under the law of God. So he's, he's not going as far as into sin. 
But Paul being a Jew, Paul being a, a Pharisee, he would have grown up with the, with the religious customs that the Jews often practice. He, he would say, I, I would lay those aside so long as I am not sinning, that I might be able to, to maybe get in closer relationship with you and remove anything that might hinder you from hearing the gospel message. Is Paul being fake? We have this fear of being fake. We have this fear of, the, of being unauthentic. Well, if I do that for them, aren't I just being fake? Doesn't that mean I'm not being real with them? Got to keep 100? How many young people in here? But what Paul is referring to is 100% what we call being fake, right? Oh, when I'm around this group, I'm acting like this. Well, when I'm around this group over here, I'm going to change, change up the way that I act. Like, Paul, shouldn't you have that same energy no matter which side you're on? Shouldn't, shouldn't you be the same person throughout? think this passage messes us up. Here's the deal. Paul isn't being fake. He's actually being radically true to himself. Here's what I mean. Paul, like me, like you, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, primary identity, follower of Jesus Christ, primary identity, son of God, primary identity, a missionary, primary identity, an ambassador for Christ, which means he esteems the, the, the mission and the message of Jesus above his own personal preferences. So he's actually being extremely consistent by saying, no matter what I eat, what I'm doing is I'm following Jesus and I want others to follow him. So if I got to sacrifice this thing while I'm over here, if I got to sacrifice this while I'm over there, I'm still true to myself because my core identity is a follower of Jesus, a missionary, one who part with God in his mission to see those that don't know him come to know him. He's actually being extremely real, extremely consistent to his true self. You don't know what inconsistency is? To be a Christian and one who loves God, but not be willing to sacrifice whatever we need to sacrifice so that others might come to know him. That's being fake. That's being fake. To be able to, to claim Christianity and say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but not be willing to sacrifice whatever is necessary so that all might come to know him, that's being fake. That, that is being separate from our true identity in him as a follower of Jesus. Paul's being more real than any of us. He's being extremely consistent with who he was designed to be as a follower of Jesus. That these preferences aren't who I am. These preferences don't make me who I am, but what I want to eat, what I don't want to eat, where I want to go, how I want to talk, that doesn't make me essentially who I am. What makes me who I am is the gospel of Jesus that I have placed faith in. That is who I am. I'm a follower of Jesus. I've been changed, transformed, born again. And Paul isn't people-pleasing, right? You know what people-pleasing is when you, when you switch it up depending on which group you're with because you really want them to like you. Right? That's not what Paul is doing. Paul said, what, is, what does he say at the beginning of that passage I just read? Verse 19, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more to them. I'm not, many, many of us are enslaved to the expectations and desires of other people, right? Enslaved. I don't want somebody to think this way about me. I don't want somebody to feel this way about me. I don't want somebody to disagree with me. I don't want somebody to reject me. So I, so I kind of conform to what they expect me to do or how they desire for me to live because I, it, it's actually a, a selfish thing, right? It's me trying to fill up something that's lacking within myself and I'm trying to use you to get the approval that I've always wanted, right? And that makes you enslaved to the people that you are trying to please. That's not what Paul is doing. Paul is saying, I am, I am free from them. I'm making myself their servant, not so that they will come to know me and like me, but that they will come to know and love Jesus. Those are two entirely different things. Two entirely different things. I heard somebody say it once like this as they were uh, 
just trying to train me up before I became a pastor on uh, how do you go about uh, kind of creating and structuring your, your worship gatherings and everything. Uh, and, and he was saying, uh, she, actually, she, she was saying something about uh, what they wanted to do and what they didn't want to do because they didn't want that to offend people. And I was like, well, we got to be okay with offending people, right? And she was like, oh, no, we're okay with offending people. We just want the gospel to be the thing that offends people and not other stuff. We don't want peripheral things to be the thing that offend people. If something's going to offend people, let it be the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let that be the offensive piece when you tell people that everybody's a sinner, everyone deserves to be judged and condemned by God, but Jesus came and died in our place. And the only way you can know God is, in, is through Jesus Christ. Not anything that you can do to earn your right and your status and your position with God. It's only by clinging to the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. Let that offend people. We don't want to offend them before we get to that. We don't want to offend them before we get to the truth that they need to hear that causes many to stumble away from Christ. If anything's going to make people stumble, let it be Christ himself. Let them be actually rejecting Jesus, not rejecting any preferences that we have that we might want to, we might want to put on people to get them to maybe be like us when they come to Christianity. Paul says, I am free from all, but I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Jesus said he is the, the son of man that came to serve and not be served. Jesus, just like Paul, of course, did not come. And, and, and just, just so we're clear, when I was talking about being enslaved by the expectations of others, that's actually seeking a service from other people, right? And I, and I understand. I'm a, I'm a people pleaser. I have to fight it every day. I, I, I desire for people to think, to think highly of me, and I'm actually using them to get something for myself. That's not actually being a servant of other people. That is serving ourselves. That is, that is self-seeking, right? That is prioritizing ourselves over others and oftentimes leads us to not say the harsh things of people that people need to hear to go on in their faith and to know who God is. The Son of Man came to serve and not to be served. Is that your heart's posture today? Is that what your heart looks like for Christians in the room? Our Savior came to us, made himself our servant, denying his own rights, his own desires, his own comforts, and he died for us that we might come to know him. Is that what our lives look like? This is something that we need to wrestle with, that I want us as, as the church to wrestle with every day. Here's a question. How would your life look different if you learn to love Jesus and his mission more than anything else? How would your life look different if you learn to love Jesus and his mission more than anything else? More than all of your preferences, more than all of your desires, more than all of your goals, even those goals that you gave to God and told God to get on board with your plan? How would our lives look different if we held all of them with an open hand and say, you know what I want more than these? is to know you more and to help others know you more as well. How would our lives look? How would our days look? How would you interact at work? How would you interact with people at school? How would you interact? We're about to get into the holiday season. How would you interact with family members that you have? What would your free time look like when you're at the house if we learn to love him and his mission more than anything else? Because I think we got to be honest with ourselves here. Some of us care more about what we're going to wear than we care about others that don't know Jesus. We often care more about how our day is going than we care about those that don't know Jesus coming to know him. We often care more about what other people think of us. We often care more about how much money is in our bank account than we care about others coming to know Jesus and being saved for eternity and knowing his love and his grace forever. 
Holy Spirit, help us examine our hearts. I said earlier that sacrifice was being willing to, set, to, to let go of the things that you love for the things that you love more. And as Christians, just like Paul, our primary identity is we are missionaries, ambassadors for his kingdom. We are being shaped and conformed into his image. We are the image bearers of the one who came to be a servant for us that we might come to know him. And when we are at truest to ourselves, we care more about his kingdom than we do our very lives. Shouldn't we sacrifice our comforts because of our love for our neighbors? Fam, I believe the fear of awkward conversations prevents so much gospel proclamation from going on. Just the fear, just the anxiety of an awkward conversation. You know what that is, right? That's caring more about our own comfort than we care about those that don't know him. We call that comfort idolatry. We, we care more about how, how am I, listen to the question we're asking, how am I going to feel in the moment? It's going to feel weird for me. It's going to be uncomfortable for me. I'm going to feel this stress about this moment. We've got to be honest about ourselves with what we love more. If we're going to repent, we're going to actually follow him. We have to be honest with ourselves. What are we prioritizing above Jesus Christ and his kingdom growing through his power? Do we love our comfort more than we love Christ and his mission? Should we not sacrifice our comfort every time on the altar of the worship of our holy God for others to come to know him? The reality of the church for the last 2,000 years is that God works through the sacrifices of his people to grow his church. God works through the sacrifices of his people to grow his church. It's his plan. It's been his plan from the beginning. Jesus will come. He would make the ultimate sacrifice. He's going to sacrifice his life that we might come to know him. Then he's going to make us and shape us more and more into his image. And the more we love him and the more we know him, the more we're going to sacrifice, the more we're going to lay down our rights, and the more he's going to use that to draw more people into him. As we look to Christ as our example, as our model, as the one who loved us like no one else did, we are transformed more and more into his image. We become servants like him, and he uses that to draw others in. Others see our love for him through our sacrifice and prayerfully come to know him, and then they repent and turn to him. This is his plan to change the world and bring his kingdom to earth, that he will use the sacrifice of you, that he will use my sacrifices, that he will use the sacrifices of his people all around the world, as Paul says, that we might save some, that he would through his Holy Spirit, reveal himself to us, cause us to love him more than our comforts, more than our desires, more than our possessions, more than our families, more than everything, and thus be willing to sacrifice those things because we love something more, which is him. I want to help us to be able to see just a little bit how God has used sacrifices of different people even in our own church family. I remember uh, when I was in when I was in college, uh, was part of a ministry called the called the Impact Movement. We had a lot of students uh, come through. A lot of students that were actually churched uh, had been in the church for a long time, but really didn't have uh, much of a relationship with the Lord. And one of the things that that we would see over and over and over again is that as people came around this body of believers, and a lot of people even came in said that they were believers. Came in first day, yes, I'm a believer and follower of Jesus. Six months in, they're like. I, I don't think I ever knew what it was to have a relationship with Jesus. I don't think I actually ever knew what it was because what I'm doing now and the way that I love him now 
And the way that I follow him now is different from anything I've ever done. I don't think I actually ever turned away from sin. And then you start asking a few more questions and, and you, you start to find out that it was because they were around other people who loved Jesus enough to make sacrifices, who were loving on them, who were sharing Jesus Christ with them. And this is in college. You know college. Most people go to college. They're just trying to turn up, right? They ain't really trying to be about that mission. They ain't really trying to share Jesus with people for most. So these are college students, young, had the world in front of them, could do whatever they wanted to with their time, and was like, I'm going to use my time to share Jesus with others. I'm going to show off his love and come to know Jesus. Let me, let me just do this for us uh, real quick. If, if, whether it was college or not, if your story of coming to faith in Jesus went something like that, raise your hand for me. Look around the room. You can go ahead and put them down. Here's what that tells me. Same thing I said a little earlier. God uses the sacrifices of his people to save the lost. Every one of you who raised your hand, what if those people were just like, no, nah, I ain't trying to follow Christ. I ain't trying to point nobody else to Christ. I'm not, I'm not trying to sacrifice my life for him and his purposes. Where would we be? Might we be a church? Might we be a church? Lord, help us to be a church that lays down our preferences because we love something greater because we love our God, because we love all of his lost children, and we want to see them come to know him. I'm going to tell a story about our good sister, Keela, today. I asked Keela, I remember, I don't know if y'all remember when Keela first came around, it was like she came, I feel like one Sunday or two Sundays, and it's like I haven't seen her at everything that we've done ever since then. Like I, and so I went and asked her, I was like, okay, well, what did that look like? How did that actually happen? So she gave me some quick notes on what happened. The first day she came, she was greeted by Jasmine and Tremont, host team. Shout out. After service, she said Tremont and other people were asking her, just, hey, how, how are you doing? How did you end up being here? People, she said, actually invited her, her to their house that day. That day. Apparently, some said about Monopoly. I think she's competitive. I don't know. <laughs> Connected with her. From there, invited her to the life group meeting, which I think meant that Tuesday. From there, invited her to that life group was going to the movies on Friday. And that Saturday, there was some other hangout that went down. And then after the life group meeting, Courtney, uh, Courtney Wallace texted her about a few days in a row, just checking on to see how she's doing and see how everything was going with her. And she'd been here every day since, I feel like. What happened? Just regular people saying, I'm going to make the sacrifice. You're right here. I know a lot of us in the room approaching somebody who's new and shaking their hand is like the most terrifying thing you can do. I understand. I'm an, I'm an introvert as well. I get where you're coming from. And, and, aren't we grateful that the people in this story here at least were willing to sacrifice those preferences, sacrifice that comfort? I think we have no idea of the power in a, in a gathering like this of just going up to someone who's new, shaking their hand and asking them how they're doing and getting to know them a little bit. I feel like we have no idea. I feel like we, we so sleep on how powerful that is and how much God might use that in people's lives. For some of us, what we need to sacrifice, the preference that we need to sacrifice is 15 minutes on a Sunday to get here early to greet people who are new who show up. Easy first step. I'm asking you for 15 minutes. 15 minutes on a Sunday morning just to greet those who are new and just let them know that they are loved that they are appreciated, and we're very glad, very glad that they're here. I said a little bit earlier that I wanted to invite you to join us on our prayer walks. To, uh, another way I could say it is to join our prayer walk team. 
For some of you, that's really the best thing uh, that you could do, to absolutely rebel against selfishness, to rebel against loving other things more than we love God and his mission to fight against that at every turn. Give you a little bit about our history. Uh, some of you might have seen this. I just posted it. I was thinking through this sermon. I remember a picture that I took uh, back in 2011 or 2012 or something like that. Uh, don't, don't, look, don't look at Facebook right now. Um, posted on Facebook and Twitter. And it was just a picture of me and those three other guys in the room. We was just praying. And one of the things we prayed for, one of, the, one of the things we prayed for, this was probably one of our bigger prayer requests, was, God, will you open up doors for us to be able to share your gospel with people in inner city too much? That especially people in neighborhoods that have been riddled with poverty, will you open doors for us so that we will be able to proclaim your good news with those who need it, those who need to know who you are? So in January of this year, we started... Uh, a few of us at first, we were just like, hey, we're going to walk around the Pirates neighborhood, we're going to knock on doors, and we're going to ask people if we can pray for them. And I said, if you come, I'm going to give you a free t-shirt. And we, we began to do that. We began to build relationships with people in the neighborhood, just asking that question. That, that, that question in and of itself is what I had determined at that time to, to cause the most easy conversations that I go deeper than the service with people in that neighborhood, just from the few years I had been there meeting people. And so eventually, when more and more people started coming, we wanted to get a little bit more organized with what we were doing. Uh, so we actually uh, had uh, Mark, uh, he, he's an IT guy, so he knows how to, how to put a lot of stuff together, including using Google Maps. And so uh, if we can throw the map up here on the screen, we actually wanted to track the houses that we went to in the neighborhood, in the Pinehurst neighborhood, with our goal that we were going to get to every door and ask people how we could pray for them. Every icon you see is a door that we went to and we knocked on to ask people if we could pray for them. And actually, that's not a true indication of all the doors that we knocked on and everybody that we pray for. Because if you're familiar, like with Four Seasons and a couple other um, uh, apartment complexes that are there, you can actually only get one icon because it kind of has the same address. I'm not, I don't know if you can see the codes that we have, but the, the green ones are the ones who were receptive to us returning to continue to pray with them and or share Jesus with them. The green ones. I said that picture doesn't do it justice because in in some of those apartment complexes, there was actually more than one door that was open to us. We went to that neighborhood not not planning to do this, and God is answering the prayer that we've been praying for six and a half years. We didn't know it was going to be literally open doors. We didn't know there were going to be literal, physical, tangible doors that were going to be open to us. He's been answering our prayers for six and a half years. Seventy homes in that neighborhood. 70 homes in the neighborhood, receptive to us returning to pray for them and or share the love of Jesus with them. May we be faithful with the answered prayers that God has given us. Might we be faithful that if we're going to pray and say, God, open doors for us to be able to share Jesus with people, and when they welcome us back, that we will be willing to sacrifice what we need to sacrifice to be able to go back and continue to do the, the ministry of prayer, but also share the love of Christ with those who do not know him. 70 doors in one part of the neighborhood, every one of them an answer prayer. Some of us in here, we, we need to grow, I really I should say all of us need to grow in loving the lost more than we love our free time. And honestly, part of the reason uh, that we started the prayer walks for myself as a pastor, I began to realize, I began to notice that uh, Especially as a pastor, I work in the office with other pastors. I don't get a lot of time around people who don't know Jesus. So I was like, I, I got to be intentional with it. I can't just sit back and wait for this to happen. I got to be willing to go to people where they are because they're not walking into my office to talk to me about Jesus. 
So it's like, I want to I wanna be intentional. How do we make this intentional? It's like, all right, we're going to walk around the neighborhood and just knock on doors. Anybody want to come with me? We'd love to have your free T-shirt. Have I mentioned you get a free T-shirt if you join the prayer walk team? Can't remember if I've said that or not. Throughout history, God has been using the sacrifices of his people to save the lost. He has not changed. He wants to use us. He delights in using us to reach those that do not know him. But the reality is sacrificing for the kingdom of God is difficult to do. Even though in the way I explained a sacrifice, I explained it as being one to let go of something you love for something that you love even more. Even though we always, in, in, that, in that definition, we, we can see that we actually always win in the end because we're always trading in something less for something better. That doesn't mean it's not difficult. Right? That doesn't mean the sacrifice doesn't hurt sometimes. That doesn't mean the sacrifice is going to be easy. Sacrificing for the kingdom for some of us will require investing in people that will try to take advantage of you and mistreat you in a variety of ways. As I said earlier, it means or it requires being willing to have an awkward conversation. It requires being willing to be rejected. It requires being willing to, to put yourself out there when you don't know how someone is going to, be, going to respond to you. For some, it means potentially being willing to step into a situation that you know is going to cause you some fear. It's going to cause you some anxiety. Paul knows that this will be difficult for us, and he gives us another encouragement in this chapter. I'm going to pick it up at verse 24. Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives a prize? So run that you may obtain it. Beginning of verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. I like Paul because he uses sports analogies, and I like sports. He points out how much self-control your, your top-level athletes would have to be willing to possess and be willing to, to, to show for them to actually reach the goal that they are trying to reach. You've seen this before. If you're familiar with anyone, especially um, uh, on an Olympic level, on a professional level, and these type of athletes that Paul is talking about is definitely on a professional level. Oftentimes, even, even for us, even at the college level, their whole schedule is set up around training for whatever event they participate in. Right? And that's no matter what sport that you're dealing with. It dictates to them when they eat, what they eat, how much they eat. It dictates to them oftentimes how much rest that they allow themselves to get. They have to fit everything else in their lives around this schedule because they're an athlete and they're trying to obtain the prize. Because they're an athlete and they have a goal that they are seeking after. And Paul says they, they do it all. They, he says all these athletes are doing, he says all the runners run, but only one gets the prize. He's saying you got all these people training this hard, knowing that most of them aren't even going to get the reward that they are after, Paul says. Continue on. He says they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. And keep it under control, lest after my preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. My family and I, we can really get into these, uh, these competition shows. I don't know what else to call them. So my wife and I, we love to watch The Voice. My boys love American Ninja Warrior. Like, they believe they're going to be American Ninja Warriors when they grow up. This is just, I don't know if it's a phase. I don't know if it's going to last. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. I also love America's Got Talent. Here's what I noticed about all of these shows. And I mean every last one of them. When one of them wins, actually, actually before they win, when they're, when they're just contestants on the show, they, they reveal to you the journey, right? 
the journey that they went through to get there, everything they had to sacrifice, all the blood, sweat, and tears that they had to put into it, everything that they had to overcome, the fears that they've had, the sadness that they've dealt with, the insecurity that they had, everything that might have prevented them from getting to this moment. They, they want you to feel that. They want you to sense that. And then when that person wins, the same thing happens every time. One, they go in a slow motion shop, right? Got to pull you in with the slow-mo. Then they give you the emotional music just to get you all in the feels. And then when they win, they, there's this moment of, it's, it's almost like a breakdown. They, 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 they just begin crying. If they have family members with them, the, the mom comes in and hugs them, and they're all crying. And, and what, what are they celebrating in that moment? They're celebrating because they're, they're, they're thinking back, and they want you to remember the journey that this person went through as a way of saying everything that person sacrificed, all the blood, the sweat, the tears, everything that they said no to because they were in pursuit of this goal. Every time they, they overcame a fear that they had in pursuit of this thing, now it was all worth it for them. It, it, it validates every bit of sacrifice that they have made in the past in that moment, and you see the emotion rise up in them when it happens. And I want to encourage believers today, because I know what, what the Bible calls us to is of some serious sacrifices that's going to cause maybe some blood, some sweat, some tears, going to cause us sometimes to be taken advantage of. It's going to cause us to be rejected. It's going to cause us to have to, to face our own anxiety, our own fears, and, and many obstacles will be in our way. And what Paul is saying right here is one day you're going to stand before your king. And he's going to give you a crown. And he's going to put a crown on you. He's saying these other athletes, they're getting a crown. That crown's going to pass away. Guess what? Next season, there's going to be a new winner. And nobody's even going to remember who that person is. He's saying you're going to get a crown that will never go away. And if you look back at everything you sacrificed, you will say all of it was worth it. You will say everything that you gave up, all, all the pain, all the fear that you pushed through, everything you sacrificed, every time you wanted to do one thing or you wanted to move towards your own comfort, but you sacrificed that for the mission. He says when you stand before him and you receive your crown, when our king says, well done, my good and faithful servant, I guarantee for all of us, it will all be worth it. Everybody makes sacrifices. Everybody makes sacrifices. And the question is always, is it worth it? Is it worth it? We need to be able to look into eternity with the eyes of faith and know that when we see him, when we go to be with him, when we meet him, when he gives us his victor's crown, it'll all be worth it. If our eyes are too caught up in what's going on right now, what's happening today, what, what, well, how can I achieve this? How can I achieve that? Or, or how can I experience this thing over? If we, if we have our eyes on that over eternity, we'll, we'll remain distracted will continue to sacrifice eternal things for temporary things. And Paul wants to call our eyes upward. No, no, look into eternity for a second. Look to the day where you're going to receive your crown and know every sacrifice that you've ever made for the sake of the kingdom of God will be seen as worth it without a doubt. We're going to proceed and engage in communion together. Before Jesus was was taken away to be crucified. He had his last meal with his disciples. And he said, this is the last time I'm going to drink from the vine until the kingdom. Right? So he, he pointed them to the fact that, that he, was, he was going to be killed, his body was going to be broken, his blood was going to be spilled, all of that. And he pointed them to the fact that, and we're going to be together again at the table. And this isn't the last table that we're going to be at, because in the kingdom, we're going to be eating and drinking together again. So as we take communion today, I want us to remember the sacrifice that our Savior made. Right, as we are called to be servants, as we're called to follow his example, as we see the broken bread, which resembles or, or represents, I should say, the, the broken body of Jesus, and as we see the juice that represents his blood, let's remember the sacrifice. 
Let's remember the sacrifice. That's the reason that we're all here. The sacrifice, the reason that we're able to worship God with everything that we have. Let's also look forward to the day when our faith will meet sight. When he comes back for his people, when we will know victory like we've never felt victory before. Let us remember both. Let us remember that on that day, every sacrifice that we made will be worth it. Let us embrace the demands of love. As we take communion, let us, let us repent if we need to. Let us embrace the demands of love, knowing that the demands of love brought Jesus to the cross where he was sacrificed in our place. Some of us, maybe before we take communion, maybe we need to confess the, the sin of complacency, the sin of, of apathy, the sin of, of idolizing our own comfort. If you want to do that, you can take a moment or two to do that. And then after that, if you're a believer here, whether you're a member of our church or not, we would love for you to partake in communion with us. I'll pray for us uh, one time, then I'll, I'll open up the communion table. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for your sacrifice, for, for showing us what a servant really is, for showing us what it looks like to really care about something greater so much that we sacrifice the things in this life that we love. Thank you for showing us what that looks like. Thank you for doing that for us. Would you work in our hearts in such a way that our lives are marked by sacrificing temporary comforts and pleasures in this life for the eternal gain of more brothers and sisters in the kingdom when we go on to be with you. Would you mark our church with a relentlessness, with, with an aggression in sharing your good news with those that don't know you? Fathers, we partake in communion. Will you remind us of these things? Will you help us keep these things in our minds and in the depths of our hearts as well? It's in Christ's name I pray.